Hi, I'm David Freudberg, the host of Humankind. People sometimes ask about the big picture of our work. Why do we present these programs? The answer is we're trying to cultivate a more cohesive sense of community. And our vision of community is based on personal ideals and values, such as compassion, generosity, equality, and civility. We aim to serve the large and growing audience of people who seek a positive alternative to media negativity and exploitation. And we strive to shed light on solutions, not just problems. If you resonate with this vision, you can support us at humanmedia.org and click How You Can Help at the top of our homepage. Thank you. Humankind is produced in association with WGBH Boston and supported by the Humankind Program Fund. There's thousands of decisions in any operation, thousands. A second by, you know, there's little moves of your hands and when to put, do this and when to do that, when to change your angle of approach. You know, it's a complicated thing to get really good results. The high-stakes job of a brain surgeon and his reflections on what a doctor can and cannot control. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. Reese Cosgrove, a Canadian-born physician treating patients and teaching doctors in the Boston area, practices neurosurgery, one of the true miracles of modern medicine. Neurosurgeons operate on people with conditions as diverse as epilepsy, Parkinson's disease, brain tumors, chronic pain, and herniated discs. We do surgery anywhere on the nervous system, uh, 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 anywhere in the body. But most neurosurgeons, uh, at least I concentrate on brain surgery and the conditions try and help cure or treat the conditions that affect the brain. So when you hear the expression, it, it's not brain surgery, how do you react to that? <laughs> well, in fact, this is brain surgery, I say. But uh, yeah, I often tell them people, actually, you don't want to have to meet me in a professional circumstance. But that's Because uh, a lot of what we do is very, very serious work. And uh, many of the conditions we deal with are life-threatening. The surgery that we do has risks that if a mistake is made, there's an obvious deficit that the patient will suffer from. Uh, Cognitive so impairment of some kind? Or it could be paralysis, loss of sensation, loss of memory, loss of ability to speak. If you uh, cause a problem, uh, often the injury to the nervous system or the brain is irreversible. So it happens very quickly, and oftentimes it can be irreversible and leave the patient suffering with a deficit that they will have for the rest of their lives. So you've been doing this for many years. That's a pretty high-stakes tightrope act you have to walk on a regular basis. Yes, um, but, you know, we are trained to do this. So, uh, uh, you know, uh, after medical school, there's seven years of training, and you gradually increase your responsibility throughout those years. And then, you know, as we uh, are in practice, we gain experience as well. So... Yeah, on a daily basis, you perform surgery uh, that uh, is uh, the most important thing that's probably happened to that patient and their family. So it's a continuous succession of, uh, of being the focus of attention of not only the patient, 
but the patient's family. So there's a lot of, uh, you're under the magnifying glass in, in that situation. And there is that responsibility to getting the best possible outcome. And uh, uh, to do neurosurgery well, you have to uh, pay complete attention to it. You have to pay attention to every single step. For neurosurgeons like Reese Cosgrove, an operation can mean hours of uninterrupted attention to detail. Having done this work for more than 30 years, he's learned to settle in, to enter his zone. You're in a deep, focused concentration, so hours can go by. And after the end, as you come up off the microscope or you're closing and doing an operation, you know, there's a sense of, wow, it's two o'clock in the afternoon and we started at 7.30 and it just seems like it just, it, it's, it's almost like meditation because you're outside yourself. Because um, you just get so absorbed in You're so the absorbed process. in the task at hand. It requires complete concentration. You can't really take your eye off the ball when you're uh, in an operating on a patient. I mean, there are times, there, there are basically three stages to the operation. There's an opening of the head to get to where you need to operate on. Then there's the operation, and then there's the closure, which is just putting everything back together again. And uh, once you've accomplished your operation and you're setting about closing, well, it's about an hour to an hour and a half of, uh, of work to get everything back together again, but, and that's much more relaxed because you're just, you've done this thousands of times and it's, you're, you're, you're on the way out and you know what you've done. Um, but then, um, you know, we wait until uh, the end of the operation, wake the patient up and examine them to make sure that, you, that there's been no consequence to any, uh, anything we've done. The design and functioning of the human brain is a magnificent mystery, a vast universe unto itself. The father of Western medicine, Hippocrates, said from nothing else but the brain come joys, delights, laughter and sports and sorrows and griefs. The brain is the bodily organ that controls the other organs through a process of transmitting electrochemical signals by nerve cells known as neurons. Our thoughts, perception and contemplation of life and the world are supplied to us by the intricate workings of the human brain. Dr. Reese Cosgrove has been studying and pondering this most of his life. You can get very focused on the science of what you're doing in a single neuron to a single another neuron, and you can create scientific hypotheses. But there's so much more there that uh, is, is what makes us human. And so we, um, I have a much a deeper appreciation for the complexity of the brain and how it works. I used to believe, I mean, I was raised a scientist. I was raised, a, well, I was raised like anybody was raised, you know, but uh, I quickly be, uh, uh, gravitated to the sciences and felt that, and I, and I became an agnostic. You know, I made my decision at age 14 that I didn't believe in religion and the, some of the hypocrisies that we find there. But so I became sort of agnostic and, and basically in my head and for the next 30 or 40 years thought that, well, we will explain this as the science progresses. We'll explain everything as the science progresses. And it's not that I don't believe in science. There is, science is, is magnificent, but it doesn't explain everything. It doesn't, it doesn't explain the spirituality 
I don't think it explains that because that is something that can't be explained within our understanding of the brain and how it works, which is a fraction of it. So does that translate into the whole of the human being does not equal the sum of the functioning of the brain that makes up how we perceive and experience our life? I, I believe that now. I never did before, uh, but uh, I, there, there, is, there, there is something else, and it sounds mystical, you know, and uh, people, my colleagues would criticize me for this, but, uh, but you know, uh, somebody once said that faith is the belief that all power can't be seen or understood. And there is something else, and uh, it's, we're, we're not just self-contained modules that have been, you know, that have evolved from microorganisms in a, in a, in a slush somewhere. Something else that can't be fully accounted for by brain activity? Yeah, I believe that. You know, um, the miracle of surgery is not that, the, that we're such great surgeons and that, you know, we do this wonderful work. The miracle of surgery I've come to understand is that the body heals in such a magnificent way from the injuries that we impart to the patient. That's the miracle. Self-healing. Self-healing. So if we do it very carefully and do it very well, yeah, the patient heals. But the miracle of what we do is that healing process. It, it, is, it is just un, uh, uh, remarkable. And you can, say, you can explain that healing by, you know, we've explained it. We've described it. But that doesn't take it to the deeper level of, well, why does that happen? You know? Or why, in certain cases, things do not successfully heal themselves. Yeah, I think we have a better understanding of that because we like to explain things that don't work out well. <laughs> um, I used to think that you know, in order to be a neurosurgeon, you have to be an ego-driven person. You have to be able to face the responsibilities of, of, of it and do things that most people wouldn't feel comfortable doing, taking the responsibility and putting the patient at risk and doing that operation from start to finish, knowing that everything you do could, could cause a problem for that patient. And I used to think that that's why we did all this training, and, and that is absolutely true. Uh, and I, uh, one of the things I've come to appreciate from the Eastern uh, religions, uh, they have a different idea of themselves as, as physicians and surgeons. They see themselves... I always thought I was the, uh, the healer. In fact, uh, the Eastern religions look at it and say, actually, yeah, we are just the instrument of God or higher power or whatever there is uh, uh, of healing. And our responsibility is to learn all about it and train ourselves to do it well and care for the patient. But ultimately, we are just instruments of something else. And our responsibility is to do what we can do well. And does focusing on that take some of the intense pressure off, relieve you of such high-stakes responsibility a little? No. <laughs> no, I, uh, but uh, uh, because, I mean, our job is to do what is clearly at hand, you know, in front of us and to do it as well as we can. So that's that doesn't change. But I think it can... Um, mollify the ego that it's that that I'm responsible for every outcome. 
Uh, because some, the things I worry about is not the things I control in an operating room. I know I can do that. I can control things in an operating room, at least to the very best of my ability. What I don't control is the event that occurs because we put a patient through surgery, i.e., why does somebody get a pulmonary embolus and two days later as they're walking have a massive pulmonary embolus and die? Well, we, we, we know why that happens, and, uh, and we take precautions for all of that, but, and we do the same for everybody, but why does that patient die? Or why does that patient get an infection? Or why, does that, why do these things happen? So I worry more about the things, that, that keeps me up more at night than, than my specific operations because uh, I can control those aspects. Uh, uh, it's the things I'm not in control of that, I, <laughs> that, that worry me more. We're talking with Dr. Reese Cosgrove, a neurosurgeon based in the Boston area. He chaired the Department of Neurosurgery at Brown University. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. For more information on this segment and to obtain an audio copy, please check our website, humanmedia.org. In 2014, while on a leave of absence from his duties at Brown University, a colleague invited Reese Cosgrove to participate as a volunteer in a week-long medical visit to the East African nation of Uganda. A hospital there in the small city of Mbali had attracted international attention for surgeries it was performing on young children. I'd always thought about going to Africa. Uh, um, you know, it had always been on my list of things to do, but never found time to do. And I said, well, absolutely, I'll go with you. And one of my father's heroes was Albert Schweitzer. You know, the story of uh, and, and he created a clinic and then a hospital. And so my father always told me about Albert Schweitzer in Africa setting up this hospital. And uh, I don't know if that's where it came from, but... Was uh, your father a physician? Yes. So... When she said she had planned this trip, I said, absolutely, I, now I've got some time, I'll, I'll go with you. The Ugandan hospital had been established more than a dozen years earlier by Cure International, a charitable organization founded by an American physician in the 1980s. Cure says it now has a presence in over 30 countries and has performed more than 160,000 surgeries. In that part of Africa, treatment of hydrocephalus, one of the most common neurological conditions affecting American children, is fraught due to eastern Uganda's very limited medical infrastructure. Hydrocephalus is a condition where the, the cavities or ventricles within the brain, uh, which are typically filled with spinal fluid, uh, um, enlarge, usually because of some sort of blockage in the system. So it's extra fluid and water, people often say, on the brain. It's actually more within the cavities inside the brain. So that in children, if there's an infection or some sort of uh, illness that causes an obstruction to the free flow of spinal fluid, it backs up just like it would back up in a plumbing system. The water doesn't, the fluid doesn't drain properly. It expands. And... In young children, before the skull is completely fused, 
the brain can expand and the heads expand. And that's the way the brain accommodates. In adults, it expands and builds up pressure and can cause death. But in the young children uh, uh, under a year and a half or, or so of age, uh, their head expands because the fluid is backing up. So, uh, and the children can be relatively normal, but their heads just expand. By what proportion? It depends. They can, if it's neglected, it can expand dramatically. Uh, and we saw cases in, 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 Af in Uganda that were really uh, mind-boggling to see. Double or triple the size of a normal head for uh, that child's age. In the United States, a standard procedure for children with this condition is surgical insertion of a shunt, which bypasses the blockage in the flow of spinal fluid. But a shunt costs thousands of dollars, well beyond the reach of a typical African family. And if it malfunctions, which happens about a fifth of the time, the medical system would typically be inadequate and the child would probably die. So the hospital in Mbali was using an alternative technique developed by Boston surgeon Ben Worf and mastered by surgeons in Uganda. It consisted of poking an artificial hole in the body's ventricular system where fluid flows in the brain. If that works, the child is cured and never needs a shunt. So he developed that, and then because there's really no pediatric neurosurgical care in East Africa, people started coming from uh, all over the, uh, uh, the region, from hundreds of miles away. And, uh, and it has um, now become a place where uh, they're the world experts in performing this kind of surgery. I mean, other than Ben here. They are such gifted surgeons that they're, they're just remarkable uh, uh, what they could do. And so easily and so so uh, eloquently that uh, it just was a marvel to watch. I mean, I think I'm a pretty good neurosurgeon. And to watch them, it was just like, wow, it's amazing what they were able to do. And uh, that's what practice does. You know, we, if we do things over and over again, we get better and better at it. And we see, we make most of the mistakes and we learn from those mistakes. And that's how you become a master. Dr. Cosgrove was especially impressed by two African neurosurgeons he met at the Mbali Hospital in Uganda, John Mugambe and Peter Senyunga. Due to overwhelming demand, they perform three or four of these operations per day. We think of Africa as this place where, you know, we go to help them and we bring modern medical care to them. Well, uh, the irony of this is that there are neurosurgeons now from Canada, United States, and uh, I think Europe that are, go there to learn from these two people and from this, this hospital. So it, it, it's really quite remarkable. How about the physical facilities available there in a developing country compared with what you'd have at your disposal in an operating room here in, you know, high-tech Boston Hospital Row? Well, uh, what's interesting is that although the, the operating rooms were basic, they were complete. And the actual equipment used uh, uh, in doing the surgery uh, was the kind of same equipment that we would use here. So they are, were well-equipped from that perspective. 
But the operating rooms were, you know, tiled operating rooms that looked like from the 1960s. They have a CAT scanner in one building where they can do CAT scans. They don't have an MRI scanner, but they have a CAT scanner. But they've got to keep that running and uh, because there's really no support. I mean, to get the guy from Siemens to come and fix it is from Kampala and, you know, the parts in Germany somewhere. And so they have to keep their generator running, to keep the machines running, to keep it's it's uh, they're really self-sufficient. The executive director of that hospital uh, is a guy named Derek Johnson, and he's one of these really capable, committed people that can make things happen in Africa. You know, like you, things don't, you just don't get on the phone and get something, you know, uh, get, send over another shipment of, of Tenno Silk or something like that. It doesn't happen. So he has to, he, he's a really wonderful guy who actually keeps everything going and organized. Does that make you appreciate how much easier it is to, to maintain stuff here? Well, make, I shouldn't say this on public radio because it makes me unappreciate our, our hospital administrators here because it's, if he can do that there, one guy with a, a, one assistant, uh, 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 you know, we're awash in administrators, uh, uh, which can't seem to get the job done in a timely way. And inflate the cost of healthcare. The, yeah, yeah. Well, one of the amazing things about the trip there was I believe that that as a surgeon or a physician or a nurse, I mean, when you're caring for somebody, that's the essential. There's no greater human interaction that you can have. And in this country, we've created all these barriers to that uh, uh, interaction. It's, it's, we create, have administrative, legal, bureaucratic. We have technology that gets in the way. Uh, uh, and the human interaction that is the very essence of one human being caring for another is sort of lost. And what was palpable over there was that this was distilled down to the essence of what we need to do as physicians and surgeons and caregivers in caring for others. These mothers would bring their sick kids in. They'd come from 100 miles away or they'd bring their children in. And that bond between the mother and the child uh, was so intense that they would bring a child <clears throat> to, to be, just be cared for, knowing that they probably left their other children behind. They may not have a husband anymore or, or something. But, and then there was this wonderful sense of compassion and caring not just from the surgeons, but from the, the medical team, the nurses and the doctors there to take care of these mothers and children. And it wasn't just the child. It was the mother and child. And um, we would go on rounds every day, and you'd hear this, the discussions and the, and the caring amongst, just the discussion amongst the physicians about what should we do. Should we, you know, open, honest communication? Do you think our typical... American healthcare interaction between doctor and patient is colder than what you saw there? Oh, much more so, yeah. Partially because of, uh, of the medical legal aspect, partially because of all this record keeping, you know, partially uh, uh, because of productivity issues. Um, the drive by hospitals to... Drive by hospital, drive by physicians. I mean, we're, we're all paid for what we do. And, you know, there's a good, there's some good, there's good reasons for that, but, uh, but it shouldn't remove 
the, the, the reason we got into medicine in the first place was to care for somebody else. And does it sometimes remove that? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. That's why physicians get burnt out. But this restored, uh, uh, this, you know, you always get more than you give on trips like this, but this restored my belief in why we do this. At this hospital in Malawi, Africa, also operated by Cure International, doctors, nurses, and other hospital workers gather daily for morning devotions. It's very different from the medical setting at standard hospitals in the United States. Dr. Reese Cosgrove. We always do a timeout in our operating rooms in, in the United States and Canada and throughout the de developed world. We do a timeout to make sure we identify the patient, we identify their date of birth, we um, uh, look at their medical record number, we confirm it on all of our records, and then uh, once everybody's confirmed and the operation and the side and the, all of these things, then once everybody agrees, then we proceed with the surgery. The timeout that they did in this hospital in Uganda was the patient's asleep, anesthetized, prepped, ready to go, and... Uh, where uh, before you lay a knife to the skin, they would say, let's do a timeout. And everybody uh, would bow their heads. And one of the team members, either the scrub nurse, the circulator, the anesthetist, or the surgeon, would say a prayer out loud. Um, essentially, thanking God for the opportunity to care for this unfortunate child. Oftentimes, uh, if it was the circulator or nurse, they would pray for a good outcome or good decision-making, good hands, uh, you know, God, God guide the surgeon's hands. Uh, they would ask for uh, grace and, and help for the mother to deal with the problem. And, you know, sometimes it would go on for several minutes because they're well-practiced at this. But, and I'd say, geez, the child's under anesthesia, let's get going, you know. But that's me, that's, that's the human doing, and that's not the human being, because they were really, they took, this was a precious moment. And, and um, it was a spiritual moment. You, in the quiet or listening to the prayer, you realized what you were doing. You were, you were doing an operation on another living, a little baby, basically, most of the time. And that was such a privilege and responsibility. And yet, and let's take this seriously for exactly what we're doing. Let's appreciate the moment. I mean, really living in that moment about what you were about to embark on, because not everybody turns out well. And there were some cases where, you know, the pathology was horrific. <clears throat> and I asked John... The extent of the disease. The extent of the pathology was horrific. And in my experience, I would say, well, this child is not might survive, but the degree of brain damage will be so devastating. And I said, this child's not going to survive. Why are we doing this? And wouldn't, you, wouldn't it be better to save the $2,000 and put it towards a child that would have the, uh, a better potential outcome? And he... He had a very wise answer, an accepting answer. He said, well, we treat 
all of the people that come here. That's part of our mission. And he says, I do the best, we do the best we possibly can given the situation and God takes care of the rest. And that's not a defeatist attitude. That's not, a, um, I think that's what acceptance is. Dr. Reese Cosgrove, a neurosurgeon practicing in the Boston area, whose view of health care was broadened upon recently visiting the Cure International Hospital in Ambali, Uganda. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. Studio recording by Antonio Oliart Rose. Editorial assistance from Thomas Royal, Kathy Graham, and Mark Kilstein. On location audio from Cure International. Webmaster Brian K. Johnson. Special thanks to Tony Buck. Our program is presented by Human Media in association with Connie Goldman Productions. Program development provided by Shart Media. You can hear more episodes of our series at humankindpodcast.org. That's humankindpodcast.org. This segment, Brain Surgeon's Journey, is Humankind Program number 214. The executive producer is David Freudberg. Please subscribe to our free weekly podcast. The title is Humankind on Public Radio. You can find it at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, NPR One, and all major podcast services, as well as through our website. Again, the podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you'd like to support our program, please visit humankindpodcast.org. And at the top, click on How You Can Help. Thank you.